0: Is anybody a Beatles fan? I was um, a huge Beatles, I'm still a big, I would still say I'm a big Beatles fan. I like to, I'd like to take that and own that. Um, when, I was in junior, when I was in junior high specifically, that's the only music I listened to. So I got to know like all the Beatles songs really well. Um, and I came to the realization, I actually, for a long time my favorite Beatles songs were the ones that kinda told a story. Right? The ones that just were kind of sprawling, they generally tended to be a bit more just narrative-wise. So you know you think of like your, um, uh, like your rocky raccoon is a good one for that. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. There's a number of them. But the one that I think is kind of the most well-known, Eleanor Rigby. So you guys does anybody know Eleanor Rigby? Okay, good. And it's a, it's a touchstone. And um. It's a really depressing song. It's on the greatest record of all time, Revolver. So, I think it's on Revolver, am I right? Yeah. Um, And it's just one of these songs that really kind of captures loneliness, despair, really well, you know. It's about Eleanor Rigby who, you know, she's got no one in her life, and then she eventually dies. No one comes to her funeral it's a really sad, depressing song if you think about the Beatles who only a few years earlier were doing all that, like, I want to hold your hand stuff. so It's a very strange transition um, in their music. But they tapped into something that I think really speaks to our... Well, it speaks to all people. We've all experienced loneliness. And especially in today's society, there's a lot of that going around. And in our passage this evening, in First Peter... Peter's really, that's who he's writing to, is these lonely people in these churches. So if you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, let's see, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read from 4 to 10, it's our passage this evening, these are the, oh, here we go, um, it's, on, it's on page 857, 857 in the pew Bibles, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Probably 4 through 12. I'm probably getting this confused. Nope, 4 through 10. Okay. 4 through 10. Let's hear these words from the Lord. As you come to him, the living stone, that, that is Jesus, rejected by people, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And the stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Persecution in the Roman world is not like you've seen it in the movies probably. Okay. Um, you know, I think the movies, they make it all dramatic. And you have these, like, Christians, and they're in the Colosseum with this large stadium of people, right? And they're, like, being attacked by lions. That rarely happened. It was actually, most Christian persecution was much more informal. It was much more localized. Um, it wasn't this, like, br- for the most part, there were periods in Roman history Where it was this like campaign where the Romans were going to take on the Christians? It kind of popped up in regional places, right? That's the thing about the Roman system of government. It was actually far more uh, confederate, you know, like um, it was kind of like more of a loose collection. It wasn't really as top down. It was more regional. Governors had a lot of saying what was happening. So they were the ones who were pushing this persecution if there was persecution in an area. So you might, go to a, you might go to a Christian church back then in, like, let's say, Egypt, for example, and people were pretty open about their Christianity. It wasn't a big deal. And then you go over to Asia Minor, and people like were super secretive about it. Like, don't tell people we're Christians, you know, kind of thing, like they, because they would have been persecuted. It kind of just depended where you were and what time it was. But this is a period... Peter is writing um, to churches, he's in Rome, and he's writing to these churches in Asia Minor, uh, which would be modern-day Turkey, and they are faced with a time of persecution from local leaders, from their families, right? Because if you became a Christian, if your family didn't convert with you, You had no support. Your family wasn't, like, going to support you with this wackadoodle religion that, you know, the government had called, like, this, like, dangerous sect, this dangerous cult, right? They wanted to be seen as good, upstanding Romans, so they didn't want to associate with you. And back in those days, your family was probably the only support system you had. There wasn't insurance. There wasn't any sort of government, like... Social programs. If your parents, if, you're, if you were kicked out of your family, forget it. You were basically living on the streets. You would have been impoverished. It would not have been easy. Another, another way people were persecuted. And so, basically, Peter is writing to this church. These churches in Asia Minor, it's not one particular church, it's a bunch of them. It was meant to be passed around. And he's been hearing from Rome all of the tough stuff that's going on with them, all of the persecution they're facing, all of these issues they're having. And he's just like, man, like, I get it. You know, he's, he has not had an easy road as a Christian either. And he's thinking, man, these people are probably feeling worthless. Especially these Gentile Christians. It's easy for us as Jewish Christians to have this strong sense of identity, you know, they can go back to their Jewish heritage. They can think back to the Old Testament and see how God was working through the lives of their family from ages past to this to, to the resurrection of Christ. But for a lot of these these new Christians, they probably started thinking, I just. I converted. I became a Christian. I I I offered my life to Christ. And although I, it feels like this was a good thing to do, I had to give up everything. I have no support anymore. My life my life has gone crazy because of it. Things are so tough. And not only that, you remember from last week we talked about there was a there were these groups of Jewish Christians going around to these churches telling these Gentile believers, well, yeah, that's all fine and dandy that you have that you have accepted Christ, but have you gotten circumcised? Have you, do you, have you, like, read the Torah all? Are, are, do you, can you even read? Like, all of these things. Do you still eat meat sacrificed to, uh, to idols? Do you, do you still eat pork? Like, there are all these things that these Gentile Christians, all of this pressure they're facing, whether or not it's from their family, from the government, from these groups of Jewish Christians who are reminding them that if you ain't Jewish, you ain't much. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Uh that's a, that's a joke for a few of you. Um, but I think it's so there's the there's this sense that you get in reading this passage. Obviously that's not what Paul's directly saying in this. But it's what he's responding to. He's responding to the sense that these gentile Christians they don't know what their identity is. They don't have this deep seated identity in the covenant of God's people, like their, their fellow Jewish Christians have. And they, begin, they probably feel isolated from them, feel lonely. Maybe they don't feel entirely accepted yet by their church, and they certainly are rejected by their families. They're experiencing this isolation and loneliness. And what's worse, all because of their decision to follow Christ. What what's was it worth making all this sacrifice just for Jesus? And you know, I don't think we feel the same. I don't think we can really understand persecution the same way that these you know Christians from Asia Minor could back then. Although it's interesting because I went on a trip in seminary to Turkey, and a lot of the things that I had mentioned about persecution with Christians in Asia Minor. It's true today with Christians in, Tur- in Turkey. Um, usually it's a little less violent. Not always. And so it's interesting how things don't change even after 2,000 years. And how maybe here in the United States we don't really understand persecution, but I do think that we in the United States specifically, we understand loneliness. And whether that's loneliness caused by isolation due to like all the stuff with the internet, that's a whole can of words, or it's just the fact that people are living longer and therefore fa- friends, family members are dying off and there's less community a part of. And I think there's this, there's this really, good, um, really good illustration of that that I want to play with you. I think a lot of people are going to be familiar with it, um, but I'll just let it speak for itself. It's like a four-minute clip. Just, yeah, be, giddy up. <laughs> it gets, it's a roller coaster ride, so, yeah. the first four minutes didn't spoil anything life has a way of doing that though it's kind of beating you down even the most positive and people life can really just with all the ups and downs with all those those little minor setbacks can really beat you down it And it can make us feel, whether it's lonely and isolated, like that at the end of the opening scenes of Up, whether it's just bitter and angry, it just, life can be like that. And I think we can really empathize with the Christians that Peter is writing to but in those dark times in life when things just keep piling up, when we lose loved ones, it can just feel like everything's going wrong. God, why, why are you doing this? Is it even worth it? I thought, I thought when, when I f- began following you, things were going to be easier. That People, that I would that I would not feel this loneliness, not feel this grief. I have to deal with all this stuff anymore. And especially when we feel that loneliness and isolation, can begin to spiral out of control. Right, you know if. If we feel lonely, we start to think, why? why are we so lonely? Why is it that there aren't these people in my life? Maybe it's because people don't like me or you know that I, it's, I'm just a hard person to love or there's something wrong with me or whatever. And we start spiraling out of control. And then we realize the things that we placed our worth in, the things that we, we placed our identity, even good things, That those things are just paper thin when the bad stuff starts happening. And eventually they'll break and we don't know where to turn. Where do we find our meaning in life now? Peter, in this letter, he seems to think that the best place to look for that, to begin to look to that is to go back to the Bible. The Old Testament for them, I mean, him and his apostle friends, they're currently at that time writing what, they, what would become the New Testament, although I don't really think they realized it at the time. But Peter is addressing to these probably mostly Gentile Christians, at least in Asia Minor, probably not a ton of Jewish Christians, he was pointing some of these Old Testament passages. And here's the thing. He doesn't point out the big heavy hitters. He doesn't you know, do Deuteronomy, you know, uh, with, you know, the, the Shema passage. He doesn't tell them, that, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He doesn't, he doesn't point them to the, the big ones that maybe his fellow Jewish Christians would have said, read these, this is what you need to know. Instead, he's pointing out these kind of random, obscure passages from Psalm 118, from Isaiah. He's pointing out these passages about building. About building a, a, a building. Uh, probably, you know, Jewish Christians would have would have looked at, the, like thought of the temple particularly, like we talked about a little bit this morning. They And, and Peter's pointing out these passages about... Stones about God building, choosing stones, choosing stones that builders would have rejected, choosing stones that you know maybe most people wouldn't have thought to look at. Stones that lay that cause people to be shamed and stumbled. Stones to put in the corner and make a foundation. And of course, we all, when we read this, because he basically says it, we know who he's talking about. And, I, and I, I'd like to think that the Gentile Christians would be like, yes, yeah, we know. Our foundation, the cornerstone in our lives, was, was supposed to be Christ. It's supposed to be Christ. We know that. We know that Christ is where we're supposed to plant ourselves. But that's all fine and dandy. But when you're sitting at home alone on Friday night, it doesn't leave a lot of comfort. Paul invites these Gentiles to think a little more deeply about the building metaphor. And he's telling them, no, 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 no. It's not just that. You don't just lay a foundation and call it good and move on. You build a house on it. You build, and he's he's telling these Gentile Christians, you are being built into a spiritual house. You are being built on the foundation, the cornerstone that is Christ. He's building you up to be a people, to be a new temple where people come and experience salvation, where people come and experience Christ. And Peter's inviting these Gentile Christians in to this ancient imagery that all the Jewish Christians would have known pretty well. And he's saying, what's true of them is true of you now. I know you haven't been circumcised. I know you, you probably eat pork. You, you eat dairy and meat at the same time. You probably even eat lobster. But still you are God's people. Just as much as these Gentile Christians, or as Jewish Christians, just as much as me, a Jewish Christian, an apostle, you too are God's people. Called to be built into a spiritual house where people can come, people can experience who God is. The foundation being Christ. And that's all fine and good, and that that really does help with feeling feeling more accepted, feeling like we have a place, feeling like we are called to be a community and, and lonely but Why, then, does the New City Catechism, why, then, does the Heidelberg Catechism, why do these books in our tradition that kind of help us understand the Bible, why do they reference this passage when talking about good works? Let's turn together. Look at, this This is the red book. It's this one, Our Faith, the little thin one. Um, Why don't you turn to Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 86, in my opinion, the best question and answer. It's not number one. Trust me, it's 86. Okay. Um, turn to that. It's on page 101 in this thing. Um, and if you would be so kind, let's read it together. I'm going I'm to ask the question. And as we're going off script. Buckle up. And you guys will read the answer together. So, question and answer 86 on page 101. Here's the question. Since we've been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ, without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also restoring us by his spirit into his image, so that with our whole lives, we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits, so that he may be praised through us, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Oh man, so good. I love it. I, because, here's the thing. That's a good question. You know, Paul, Peter... Um, Paul wrote more letters than Peter, so I always think of Paul. Um, but Peter in this passage... He's telling these people that they have been called by God and that ultimately they've been accepted by Him. And he says this in, chat, in uh, verse 9, but you are a chosen people. You didn't choose me. Or no, you didn't choose Jesus. He chose you. They may have chosen Peter, I don't know. But, but, they, but God chose them to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of the darkness, who called you out of the darkness into His wonderful lights. You see, that's what Peter wants them to know. You're a people, not because you get along with everybody in your community. I... If you read, read the New Testament, nobody gets along. It's just like none of them can get along. You look at, especially at the ragtag group that Jesus assembled, the Twelve. Man, it was a dumb idea to choose those guys, in my opinion. Worked out, thankfully. But nobody's getting along together. No one would choose to be in groups like that, especially this, these early churches. A lot of these Christians facing this persecution You have to stop and think. And I imagine people at that time were thinking that. Why would you choose this life? Wouldn't it be better off to just stay, be a part of your family, to live a nice life, put your head down, be a good Roman? Instead, you go off and you join this weird cult that talks about drinking some guy's blood and eating his flesh. Wouldn't it be better to choose a different way. But here's the thing. Although it may seem a lot like we choose God, God's working in weird ways, ultimately He's the one who first chooses us. And so He chose us to follow Him. And if all these things, if, all, if God's working all these things out through His power, and not the power of our, on our own, why do good things? Why then would Gentile the same question with Gentiles who, who have entered into the church family, why would the Jewish Christians, why would these Jewish Christians roaming around insist to follow these rules? Well, we learned last week, it was that misguided sense that it was nice, they wanted a checklist to have this feeling that they were in control. But in reality, they don't. But Jesus is saying, but Peter is saying, ultimately, we're called to do these good works as a response to what God has given us. He's given us a community. He's given us identity. He's given us a purpose. And he's given us himself. He's called us to be a part of his community. He's redeemed us by his blood, taking the ultimate sacrifice. And so when Christ calls his people, he also gives them a uh, a vocation, a calling, if you want to use a, probably not a very good word for it, a job. He gives them something to do, not in order to achieve anything. We already know that we can't achieve that stuff. God gives it to us, but he gives calls us to have the vocation of gratitude. I love the word gratitude. I, I, I've, I've preached a sermon like this a couple of times, and I want to use this story because I really love it. When I was, a, when I was younger, um, I don't know, I, probably, I, don't, I feel like I've told this story, but my mom, we, we, my mom's a really hard person to give a gift to, and my siblings and I for thought for some weird reason it would be a good idea to get her a popcorn machine or a popcorn maker. And so we gave it to her on her birthday or Mother's Day. I can't remember. And she's like, oh, thanks, guys. She opened the gift. She's like, wow, this is great. She puts it on the ground, never to open it again. I think like 10 years later, I went to the attic, still sitting there unopened. And you can tell that she wasn't grateful for the gift. Because, I mean, first, we didn't really know her. We, got, we, did, we do a lot better now of getting her gifts. But like when we were younger, we thought, well, this would be a good idea. Because when, you, someone, when you're given a gift, you, and when you give gifts, you want people to use them. You want people to be grateful for them. And so Christ has given us this gift. He's given us a new identity in him. He's called us to be a people. Not out of any power of our own, but all of by His power. And so the reason that we're still called to do this good work, to, to, to praise God, to, to invite people in, to, to, to share the good news like Peter is calling these Christians to do is not because they're trying to achieve anything but all because of they want to respond or they should want to respond in gratitude for what they have been given. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we often, we do not respond in the way we should. Often we kind of just are lazy and we think, eh, We're forgiven. You've already called us in. We're good enough. But Lord, we know that that's not enough. You've called us in. You've called us to be this spiritual house, to be made into a community. Not so we can just sit around and enjoy the the good things that come from that to ourselves. But instead, you call us to do good works, to follow your law, to strive to do good, to strive to enter into the reconciliation you're bringing, not because we're trying to achieve anything, but because of what has been given for us. We can't help but live that life of gratitude, thankful for all you've done for us. So Lord, today we pray that our lives may be framed around gratitude, And that the reason we do all things is not out of duty or obligation, but out of thankfulness to you for what you've already given us. Amen.